You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 20, Bonds Broken by Battle, Bite and Bridge. At the end of the first decade of the 1400s, everything seemed to be going peachy for John the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy, Count of Imperial Burgundy, Count of Flanders, and Count of Artois. He had resisted a large workers' rebellion and maintained his centralizing influence over most of the Low Countries. He had mollified and nullified many of his biggest rivals, curated an immense network of people who could be counted on in all corners of society, in civil bodies, the church, and systems of government. He had nurtured and made official the alliance his father had created with the other major power base in the Low Countries, the Count of Hanno, Holland and Zeeland, William VI of the House of Wittelsbach. John had largely managed to avoid the familiar familial squabbling which so often accompanied large inheritances by working closely with his brother Anton, Duke of Brabant and Limburg. He was able to keep at least one hand on or close to political primacy in France and once more had access to the kinds of funds that could keep the Burgundian wheel of fortune turning. By the end of the second decade of the 1400s, however, fate, in the forms of an English army with longbows, a mad dog and a treacherous bridge, would intervene and Anton, William and John would all be dead. With their departure from the scene, the fate of the Low Countries would once again be thrown into the realms of uncertainty. As we mentioned in the last episode, following the death of Louis, the Duke of Orléans, John the Fearless had to appear before the King of France in early 1408 at a judicial inquiry into the murder which had been set up by Louis's widow, Valentina Visconti. John had employed a theologian named Jean Petit to defend his actions and while the so-called justification was a dazzling piece of work with 
as many Bible references as he could possibly chuck in, many people were still left unconvinced. They were, however, understandably afraid of speaking out too quickly against a man with a large army and obviously no qualms about killing his enemies. Although King Charles VI had absolved John of his crime, he had done so during one of his brief moments of sanity, and when he once again succumbed to a bout of madness, John's opponents were ready. With the Duke of Burgundy out of Paris dealing with Liège in September 1408, an abbot delivered a speech on the 11th of that month to the royal court in Paris, in which he rebuked Petit's justification and called for extreme punishments for John, including being forced to give up all his lands, to publicly confess and beg Visconti and her children for forgiveness. He was also to pay a fine of a million francs, he was to be exiled from France for 20 years, and had to set up churches in Paris, Burgundy, Orléans, Rome, and Jerusalem to pray for eternity for the soul of Louis of Orléans. The Regency Council, which was attended by all the other French royal princes except John, agreed to revoke the king's pardon of him and to proceed with charges against him for his crime. So although John had successfully orchestrated the murder of his biggest rival and remained quite popular amongst the people of Paris in particular, the opposition movement to him in the court was still alive and well. After the military victory at Ote at the end of September 1408, and when he was finished decapitating people and enabling the drowning of priests in the Meuse River, John the Fearless turned his attention back to Paris. The shockwaves from John's crushing defeat of the Ligeois had reached the city. With the court being against John, but many people being for him, the situation there began to descend into anarchy. The threat of John turning his army around and marching it into the French capital became too much for the royal family to bear, and at the beginning of November 1408, on the orders of Queen Isabeau, the entire court was packed up and moved to the more secure location of Tours, with the king apparently being dragged onto a rowboat while in a very mad state, and sent up the Seine River to an awaiting escort. He was insane in the Seine. By the by, Mad River King would be a great name for a bluegrass album. So things were tense when John made yet another triumphant entrance into Paris at the end of November. He had not brought his whole army with him, but did bring a force of about 2,000 men to act as a personal protection squad. They were led by his brother-in-law, Count William VI, the Count of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. John knew that the key to having power in France was to be in actual physical control of the king and the Dauphin, and so it was imperative for him to get them to return to the capital, but it was equally important for his personal prestige and honour not to succumb to the demands being made of him by the royal court at the behest of those who had now rallied against him, namely the murdered Louis' widow, Valentina Visconti, and one of the other royal princes, the Duke of Bourbon. John used his ally, William who was related to Queen Isabeau, being also a member of the House of Wittelsbach, as a mediator with the court. These were hate-filled negotiations, but the tense difficulties of them eased considerably. When Valentina Visconti died in December, extremely conveniently for John, 
In March 1409, a settlement was reached between the two sides, known as the Peace of Chartres, in which John agreed to essentially none of the long list of demands which had been made of him. At a highly choreographed ceremony in the Cathedral of Chartres, at which William played the role of head of security, with his very visibly armed low country troops watching over the whole affair, John and the relatives of Louis of Orléans agreed to symbolically kiss and make up. They entered a room from opposite sides and stood in front of the king and queen, sat on raised thrones before them. John did not apologize for the murder, nor did he express any regrets other than for the hurt it had caused to the king. The sons of the dead Louis agreed to pardon John for their father's murder, but only because the king wished them to do so. Oh, and John also agreed to marry one of his daughters off to one of those sons, because, you know, it's the 1400s. And so, after conceding precisely nothing, John once again got away with the murder of Louis of Orléans. As you may well imagine, however, the Peace of Chartres did little to bridge the massive gulf which had developed between John and his opponents. Monstrelet mentions in his chronicles the people in the cathedral were now heard to say that it would be no big deal to kill any prince of the blood, since apparently you could do so without even having to apologize, let alone be punished for it. Monstrelet also mentions that the sons of Louis of Orléans left the ceremony, quote, not well satisfied with the peace that had been made, end quote. Quite an understatement. In the coming years, the opponents of John the Fearless would coalesce into a faction known as the Armagnacs, and the resulting civil war between the Armagnacs and the Burgundians would rage for more than 20 years. But as fun as this diversion or derivation into French politics has been, we were mostly interested in it due to the mediating role played by William, Count of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. And we are now going to put it to the side and return back to our beloved little swamp. In the last episode, we spoke a little bit about how upon his elevation to the title Count of Flanders in 1405, John the Fearless had acquiesced to the demands made to him by the four members of Flanders, the big cities of Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres, as well as the rural area outside Bruges known as the Frank of Bruges. John, having learned the lessons given him by his parents, was well aware of just how important Flanders was, of how annoyed the Flemish were that, despite maintaining their independence from France so fiercely, his grandfather, his father, and now himself, had still all tended to be more preoccupied with France. He knew also how prone all the various and fractious factions in Flanders were to rebellion. So, to stymie this, in 1405, the same year that he had made the triple alliance with Anton and William, John the Fearless made sure that from then on, he and or his wife would be present in Flanders for significant and long periods. John's approach to Flanders was twofold. Firstly, he cultivated a system of beneficiaries to his rule, clients amongst the Flemish nobility and urban patriciate to whom he gave gifts and favours and who remained happy with him being in rule. Secondly, John would give with one hand and then take with the other. In practice, he left the mercantile and commercial systems that the cities of Flanders had developed alone, enabling greater freedoms of trade to keep the towns happy. But at the same time, 
he passed legislation that actually strengthened his ability to control aspects of international trade, should he wish to. No matter how benevolent John's approach may have seemed in Flanders, ultimately he, and then eventually his son Philip, would work to chip away at the autonomy and power of the four members. For example, when he had made his joyous entry as the prince in 1405, the demands foisted upon him by the four members had, as a priority, the conclusion of a trade agreement with England. Although this was completed by the end of 1407 and included a stipulation that it would be maintained even in the event that war erupted between France and England, Around the same time, John brought harsh limitations down on Bruges, which included an indirect tax of one-seventh the cost of sales of certain goods, as well as a prohibition for craft guilds to assemble their militia in Bruges, unless expressly permitted by him. In doing this, John had given all four members something that they had long desired, but he had taken something away from only one of the members, being Bruges. There was little the bourgeois could do about it except grumble, which they certainly did. The four members, though, were not entirely fond of each other. Three of them would not risk the benefits of John's liberal approach to England for the benefit of Bruges only. Just as he did in Paris in his propaganda war with Louis of Orléans, in Flanders, John was able to manufacture an image and reputation of himself as a strong but benevolent local prince, a ruler with a suitable air of mystique and power which he wielded to the benefit of the general populace, the Bion Commune. Using his father's tried and tested tactics of heaping lavish gifts upon people and establishing personal bonds of loyalty between himself and clients, he went about stemming the power of the big commercial cities without disrupting the sense of power that the urban elite felt within those cities. There were other, greater actions that he took. In 1408, he was able to undertake fiscal reform measures which more widely distributed tax burdens across Flanders but which also made the overall collection of taxes easier. In 1409, his council was given greater rights in jurisdiction of issues between the four members and also in conflicts around trade privileges for foreign merchants. To show the towns that they were not the only ones he was targeting, however, John also took greater control over the affairs of ducal office holders. These were people who worked for him as sheriffs, bailiffs, magistrates in the ducal court, etc. These kinds of jobs provided positions of localized power to people, and they were very often abused by those people. This was a power base that often clashed with the autonomous desires of the towns, and so the four members were in support of limiting their power, and generally supported John's moves to do this. So we can see clearly that John was a very gifted politician in being able to juggle the varying demands that came with ruling Flanders successfully. Most importantly, of course, he did not openly infringe upon the smooth workings of international commerce in Flanders. All of this appeased the Flemish longing for love and attention and money. However, in 1411, after having spent a good year living in Flanders, it became apparent that affairs in France were going to require John to return to Paris for reasons that we are not going to get into because, again, we're not a French history podcast. The Flemish towns let their displeasure at this neglect by the Duke of Burgundy be known, so before leaving Ghent, 
he made his only legitimate heir and 15-year-old son, Philip, the Count of Charolais, his personal representative in Flanders. Being a good lad, Philip accepted this honour and duty. One of the things that Philip would benefit from most was the alliance made between his father, his uncle Anton, the Duke of Brabant, and uncle on his mother's side, William VI of Bavaria, the Count of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. In itself, this alliance had relied on the double wedding in Cambrai that his grandfather had arranged back in the 1380s. So essentially, Philip had a fairly solid and intergenerationally built ground on which to begin his rule of Flanders and to prepare for his eventual succession as the Duke of Burgundy. But speaking of preparing for the future, here's an ad break to help us do the same. We'll be back shortly. We've got a piano. <laughs> Welcome back. So, although the alliance between John, Anton, and William that had held together the major power bases in the Low Countries was rather solid, it wasn't completely immune to conflict within. Even though they were brothers and showed overall united commitment to Team Burgundy, in early 1411, John and Anton became embroiled in a trade and territory conflict that had emerged between the Flemish town of Mekela and the Brabantine town of Antwerp. These cities were old rivals and had both been fought over in the War of Brabantine Succession some 60 years previously. Now, they had fallen into bitter dispute with each other over who should have the staple right to the trade of salt, fish, and oats in the region. Salt, fish, and oats sounds like the worst breakfast ever, but were extremely desired and valuable products to have first dibs on, which is what staple rights provided. An exchange between John and Anton shows that, although brothers and firm allies, they were each willing to defend the rights of their own domain against encroachment by the subjects of the others. Anton had, as Duke of Brabant, taken the side of Antwerp. John wrote to him, saying that he didn't like the fellows who were giving advice to Anton in this matter, and that Anton would be better off keeping him, John, his brother and higher lord, happy. At the moment, he was feeling more like John the Cheerless. Anton's supposed reply was recorded by Edmond de Dinter, who would the following year become Anton's secretary, as well as that of the next three Dukes of Brabant who would follow him, because, yes, yeah, spoiler alert, these Dukes would not last very long. Anyway, Edmond de Dinter said Anton's reply was, quote, My lord and brother, I recognize that you are my elder brother, and so long as you do not interfere with me in my jurisdiction, I shall take care to fulfill promptly whatever service and friendship I owe you because of your primogeniture. However, as Duke of Brabant, I am not prepared to allow you, as Count of Flanders, to encroach on my frontiers, in the conservation of which you, more than anyone else, are bound to assist me with aid, counsel, and goodwill." End quote. That's a brilliant response. Basically, Anton said to his older brother, Look, I know you're in charge of the house, but stay out of my room. John did not stay out of Anton's room, however, and when he allowed a blockade on Antwerp, this forced them towards needing a mediated peace. Soon after the affair had captured the attention of the other big cities in both Brabant and Flanders, and the negotiations just carried on. 
1413, they reached some kind of agreement, identifying 27 points of contention between the two towns. Despite this, nothing really changed, and both the towns ended up appealing to the man who was, if you asked him anyway, the Holy Roman Emperor, Sigismund. Sigismund tried to give them both what they wanted and ended up solving nothing, so that conflict remained an ongoing bone of contention between the two brothers. Let's look a bit more closely at Anton. He was a prince who demonstrated the same ability as his brother to separate the requirements of his various roles and obligations, just as John could act contradictorily as a French prince and as the Count of Flanders, Anton successfully walked the line as the ambitious Duke of Brabant, which remember was a very high rank of nobility, and also as a loyal younger brother to John. Overall, he reliably followed what seemed to be the general aim that had resulted from the course that their father had set the family upon, to strengthen their Burgundian grip in the Low Countries. He set up a centralized financial center in the town of Brussels, which led to Brabanters becoming the first people in European history to moan about bureaucrats in Brussels. General discontent with politicians in Brussels. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. In 1409, Anton married a German princess called Elizabeth of Görlitz, who was of the Luxembourg clan and a niece of Wenceslav VI, King of Bohemia, and another wannabe Holy Roman Emperor. As we know, Luxembourg's title had been bought by Louis of Orléans. With his murder, it had reverted back to Yossa of Moravia, who, with this marriage, agreed to let Anton pay for it. Although Yossa died before it could be done, this transaction was still allowed to happen, and for a brief moment Anton and Elizabeth were also the rulers of Luxembourg. However, what they faced was continual resistance, rebellion, and it has been described guerrilla warfare against their tenure. Elizabeth would end up being left to deal with this as well as a mounting debt for her entire rule of Luxembourg. Despite his conflict with his brother over the Mekela and the Antwerp issue, and his own ambitions as a territorial prince, Anton remained a staunch supporter and ally of John in the ever more consuming French political issues. Considering how complex John's position was at the French court, and with the unpredictability of the mad French king, there were times when Anton was more popular and had to defend his brother against the vagaries of the king's moods and thoughts. He did this consistently and loyally, especially after 1413 when John again fell out of favour with King Charles. It has been argued that if Anton's life was to have lasted long enough for his marriage with Elizabeth to produce children, that they had the potential to become the dominant branch of Burgundians in the Low Countries, instead of what eventually happened, which is that they were just consumed by John's son Philip. Philip at this time was finding that rule of Flanders was of a particularly Flemish flavour, filled with flaky and fluctuating flip-flops, where one must flirt with the flagrant flare of flickering flouts, flustering in the fluid flows of flexing flax fabricators. You had to watch out for angry weavers, in other words. He would quickly learn that the flavour of Flemish rule carried hints of unrest and not too subtle notes of rebellion. Like we mentioned earlier, his father had stripped Bruges' guilds of the right to assemble a militia without their consent, 
when John left for France in 1411, it was to go and fight the Armagnac faction. And for this, he raised banners. And the Bruges militia were, along with thousands of others, ordered to mobilize. After a month of unsuccessful campaigning, the Flemish militia cracked the sads. Men from Ghent, Ypres, and Bruges all deserted. Those from Bruges, in particular, were still unhappy about the limitations put on them in 1407, and also about that one-seventh tax that had been levied on their town. The men from Ghent, also just always in a mood for rebellion, just went and set fire to the Duke's camp before deserting, and then the men from Ypres had to be talked down from sacking Lille on the way back home. When the Bruges militia returned to Bruges, they refused to enter their city until Philip, as acting ruler, conceded to a list of demands that they had for him. Now Philip, like almost every count of Flanders before him, would need to find a way through the mire of defiance that was Flemish urban autonomy. Fortunately, he was the third generation of some very able politicians and had some master advisors, including his mother, around him to help deal with it. Overall, Philip and his council conceded four of the seven demands made by the Bruges militia, including an increase of their pay and the revoking of the ban on assembling their militia without comital permission. That law had come to be known derisively amongst the people of Bruges as the calf fell, meaning calf's skin. This was meant to indicate that the law was nothing but a bit of useless leather. In his concessions, Philip also showed an adroit understanding of the power of symbolism. Although he included a protestation against doing so, he allowed for the actual calf fell, the actual bit of leather, to be fetched from the central archival offices and ceremoniously be given to the people so that they may rip it to shreds. To protect his father's dignity, he also recorded that this was done without John's consent. But then he went further still. He had two of his father's ducal officers dismissed, men who had been particularly repressive in their dealings with the guilds. He then swept a broom through the office of bailiffs in Flanders. In granting these big concessions and symbolic victories to the rebels, Philip was able to avoid having to give in to another one of their demands, which had been that he abolish the one-seventh tax that had been levied in 1408. Like his father before him, Philip had been able to give with one hand while holding back with the other. It must be said, though, that despite weaving his way through this eruption of discontent, the rebellious flair would of course remain lit in Bruges, and it would take Philip until two and a half decades later to extinguish it. In 1415, the new English king, Henry V, after a year of failed negotiations with the French, looked at the discord in France, pulled out his family's old claim to the French throne, waved it about, and invaded the continent again. The result was the Battle of Agincourt in October 1415, in which the English and their longbows would absolutely destroy a French army, killing thousands of not only common soldiers, but also French knights and nobility. The reason we bring this up is because one of those nobles was one of the members of the Low Country Alliance, which had so fortified the Burgundian domination in the Low Countries, the Duke of Brabant, John the Fearless's loyal brother, Anton. According to Monstrelet, when Anton arrived at the fight, he was a little bit late to the party, but he was still eager, and he threw himself into the battle. His charge, though, was cut down without mercy by the English onslaught.
the Duke of Brabant was now dead. Honourable mention also goes to the younger brother of John and Anton, Philip, the Count of Nevers and Rethel, who also perished in the battle. You might be asking why John himself wasn't there. That's a good question. For some reason or reasons that remain unknown, his army did not arrive in time for the battle at all. Now, turmoil and feudal feuding could once more rise to the fore in the Low Countries. The Triple Alliance had been struck a blow. The question of Brabantine succession, as we well know, was always one prone to the interests of various power factions. When it came to the rule of Brabant, the states of Brabant, the Counts of Flanders, and the German Emperor all had their own demands and wishes. The Duke of Helders was also always looking for a chance at taking bites out of a weakened neighbour. Anton's first marriage before Elizabeth had produced children, and from this he left an heir, who was still a child, and also called John. John the Fearless now moved to establish his dominance over Brabant for good, which would create a personal union between Brabant and Flanders. He declared himself regent of his nephew. The states of Brabant, however, had other ideas and declared their own regency council, which neglected to include John. He was incensed enough to actually go to Brabant and wave his big sense of importance around in the faces of the burghers and the other power brokers. They didn't blink, however, and John was forced to accept his nephew's ascent to power as the Duke of Brabant John IV without him in actual charge. But at least John still had William VI. In these years, besides mediating for John, William had also been busy with other low country politics. Like we mentioned briefly in the last episode, William VI had been in conflict with the Duke of Helders, Reginald IV, over the town of Chorinkum. We butchered the pronunciation of the town's name last time, so we thought we should butcher it again. Chorinkum had been ruled by a vassal of Holland, the Lords of Arkel who had switched to the Duke of Helder's side and thereby sparked a struggle of control for the town of Choringham and the lands of Arkel. This conflict was part of what is known as the Arkel Wars, which sound like something out of Star Trek. Despite the fun Arkels grabbing Choringham for the Duke of Helder's in 1407, it was taken back by William VI in 1412 when he decided to end the conflict in the most Dutch manner possible and negotiated to buy it off Reginald IV. Having his lands sold off by his supposed new friend greatly irritated the Lord of Arkel, who tried his best with a small army to hold off the Hollanders as they came to retake the lands of Arkel, but he was unable to do so, and he fled. He was eventually captured though by Hollander knights in 1415 on his way back from Anton's funeral, and then he was held captive by William VI in Gouda for the next decade. His son would later attempt to take back Chorinkum for the Arkels, but would die in the attempt, and thus ended the Arkel Wars. It must have been rough being one of the small swamp fish stuck between two big and hungry swamp fish. William was also busy with that other most pressing concern for the Counts of Holland, and that was dealing with the Frisians. In 1414, the town of Starforda, which was always the centre of conflict between the two regions and had come once again under Holland's control a decade earlier, was taken over by rebellious, freedom-loving Frisians. According to Grimestone, 
William decided he would go and deal with the Frisians again, but then he got preoccupied with more pressing events elsewhere and never got around to it, because in May 1417, he was bitten by a dog. The wound became infected, and suddenly he was on his deathbed, giving out his final wishes and commands. In Holland, William let it be known that his daughter, Jacqueline, would inherit his lands and titles. William VI had faithfully stood by John the Fearless, had helped to mediate to his benefit in France, and had succeeded himself in bolstering his own power base in the north of the Low Countries. But even the best laid plans can be taken down by an angry dog. John had now lost his two greatest allies, and the bonds between Flanders, Brabant, and Holland were weakened as a result. He needed to move quickly in order to secure his hold on power and influence in all three regions. His key to doing this, he decided, would be Jacqueline. Jacqueline had been married to John of Touraine, who, despite being the fourth son of Charles VI and Isabeau of Bavaria, had outlived his older brothers, and so became the Dauphin in 1415. Isabeau, remember, was one of John the Fearless's biggest rivals. The young Jacqueline was like the French queen of the Bavarian clan. Being married to the Dauphin meant that Jacqueline could come under the influence of Isabeau. This would have been a dangerous prospect for John. If her father, William VI, had died while she was still married to the Dauphin, then her succession to Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland would have given John's enemies in France a foothold in the Low Countries. But conveniently for John the Fearless, as seems to have happened quite regularly, her first husband died about two months before her father, and so he was able to do what her father had done, care absolutely nothing about her own free will, and start to use her to his own advantage. He arranged to marry the now 16-year-old Jacqueline to his nephew, the new Duke of Brabant, John IV. It was a swift and very Burgundian move. This way, he could keep the biggest low country domains within the Burgundian sphere of influence. This marriage, however, would prove to be a disaster, and the conflict that would surround it will be the focus of the next episode. Despite having been basically exiled from France since 1413, John remained extremely busy on the French political front. In 1417, he made another move for power in Paris. This almost succeeded. However, the Armagnacs rallied behind the new Dauphin, Charles, who, although only 15, seemed up for the fight. John did manage to wrest back control of the Queen and, by the end of 1418, also Paris. But it would not last for long. The Dauphin, Charles went and set up a court in Bourges, in the centre of France, in 1419. From there, peace negotiations were embarked upon. In the course of these, and with the purpose of signing an agreement that would become known as the Bay de Ponceau, the Peace of the Bridge, bit of foreshadowing there, Charles and John would meet several times, not far from Mellon, in July. A follow-up meeting was arranged for September, on a bridge in Montereau. All the details of the meeting were arranged by the Dauphin. When John the Fearless arrived at the meeting point in Montereau, it became clear that things were not as they should be. He was noticeably uneasy and there was a great tension in the air as he approached the bridge. Somebody warned John that his life was in danger. And one can imagine that he had many second thoughts 
about attending the meeting. But he wasn't called John the Fearless for nothing, I suppose. The Dauphin had had a wooden palisade constructed along the bridge and told John that ten knights could accompany him. His secretary, however, also snuck in. When they reached the Dauphin, John kneeled in deference before him. When this was met with barely any acknowledgement or, at the best, indifference, John is said to have then put his hand on the hilt of his sword, at which point several of the Dauphin's men exchanged looks between each other, and one of his knights, Tanguida Chastel, suddenly lifted his axe and swung it at John. The other men began to shout, Kill! Kill! in a fashion reminiscent of the cries that accompanied the Duke of Orléans' murder. Another man stabbed at John, who lifted an arm to protect himself, but was cut through nonetheless. Tanguy de Chastel then struck him again, this blow being thought to have been the one that would kill the Duke of Burgundy. Some might argue that there was a bit of poetic justice to this manner of demise of John the now earless, or even faceless. At the very least, it mirrored one of the defining acts of John's life, the assassination he commissioned 11 years prior of his cousin, the Duke of Orléans. Some reports say that his hand was cut off afterwards, much as his men had done to Louis. Whatever the truth in that regard, the fact is, John's time was now over. During his reign, he had successfully managed to bolster his and his family's influence on all levels of society and across many different domains. He had brought to heel enough of the disruptive elements of Flanders to be able to preside over an era that was incredibly peaceful there, at least in comparison to what it had so often experienced prior to the rise of the Burgundians. John had been heavily embroiled in French politics, with his murder by the Dauphin, who would in 1422 become King Charles VII, John's son Philip, the next Burgundian duke, would turn his back on France and pursue an alliance with England. The strength of the Triple Alliance between Flanders, Brabant, Hanno, Holland and Zeeland had relied on the personal bonds of union between John, Anton and William. With their deaths in relatively quick succession, Anton in 1415, William in 1417, and now John in 1419, the Low Countries became once again up for grabs for whoever had the greatest claim, the fattest purse, the best political cunning, or the biggest sword, or probably just a little bit of everything, actually. The first battlegrounds in this new phase will be over control of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. Jacqueline of Bavaria's succession to these domains will be instantly challenged by her uncle, a man we have met before, the soon-to-be former bishop-elect of Liège, he with no pity, John of Bavaria. These two would take sides in the conflict that aligned with factions in Holland, which we have also met before, and the Hook and Cod Wars would erupt once again. John the Fearless's son, Philip, meanwhile, will watch from afar as these rival power brokers smash against each other and figure out how to take advantage of it all. He would also have to establish himself as the new Duke of Burgundy. Likely, he probably really wanted to get his own awesome nickname, hopefully one as cool as his grandfather and father had earned themselves, one like The Bold or The Fearless. If only he just supported us on Patreon, we would have just given him one. Speaking of Patreon, 
it's our favourite time of the episode, when we get to thank those people who have chucked some money in the jar, thrown a bone to the dogs, and earned themselves a fancy new identity. I know we say this in a facetious manner, but your support on Patreon is the way that enables us to make this show. Seriously, without it, we simply wouldn't have the time to read all the necessary materials, pay for the website, come up with 21st century pop culture references to 15th century medieval conflicts, or spend time writing and editing and recording. Also, Patreon is a great way to get in touch with us. If you have any questions about any of the episodes, asking on Patreon is the best way to bring it to our attention. So with that being said, it's time for a big cheers and thank you to our newest supporters on Patreon, our fanciest, friendliest swamp friends. Peter Wimo Wimkin. Wimo. Mark Lemo Lemka. Lemo. Thomas Davo Davin. Davo. And Kiri. Kiro. Kiro. Hey, Wimo, Lemo, Davo and Kiro. Cheers. Really appreciate it, folks. And finally, old mate, James, gotta love it, found that he loved my butchering of the town name Chorinkum so much that he upped his pledge of support. Gotta love it. In honor of the three bucks that he now contributes per episode, we're going to say his name three times. James, James, James. Gotta, gotta, gotta. Love it, love it, love it. If butchering Dutch place names is your thing, then stay tuned. There's plenty more where that came from. In fact, why wait? Let's go to the credits with a taste of me butchering Dutch place names. This is for everyone, but mainly you, Jimmy Goddard. Scheveningen. Utrecht. Biesbos. Schiphol. Leeuwarden. Scheermonnig oog. Sertogen Bos, Schravenhagen, Schagen, Zumarum, Dutinchum, and finally, thanks to Friesland, a town that promises far more than it can probably deliver, Sexpira. Okay, that's enough for now. Doei! Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.